Hello, my name is Hannah. I'm a fourth year global law student at Carleton University. I'm currently in Halifax, and I'd like to take this time to recognize that I'm on Mi'kma'ki territory. I'm joined here today with my classmate, Sumaya. Hi, I'm Sumaya, and I'm in my fourth year of business law at Carleton University. I'd like to recognize that I'm currently on Algonquin territory. We've created this podcast in light of our religious freedoms course at Carleton University, taught by Dr. Melanie Adrian. This podcast was created as a thought piece to discuss larger issues within the Canadian legal system, addressing Aboriginal beliefs and their interpretation within our courts. Inspired by the 2017 Supreme Court Tunaha case, we offer a resolution for possibly changing the outcome of future cases which deal with the object of belief and religious freedom. The Tunaha case raised some important issues for us, the largest one being how can we extend the object of belief and protections of its manifestation to Indigenous traditions. After having the pleasure and opportunity to speak with Dr. Nicholas Shrepsal on his novel, What Has No Place Remains, the Challenges for Indigenous Religious Freedoms in Canada Today, we realize that unless the legal system can be decolonized and a fundamental change of the land-person relationship can occur, Moving forward for cases such as this, the protection of religious freedom is more fruitful under the peoplehood framework. This is attributed to the secularist state and its settler identity. Larger social structural issues that are going on within Canada and elsewhere around the world regarding secularism, uh, liberalism, and obviously its confluences with colonialism requires a fundamental change in how uh, the land-person relationship is engaged in and understood in the law, and how that's going to how that needs to be changed. Because mm -hmm. if that changes, then we can start seeing the protection of of the land, of water, of animals. This is why I think the concept of peoplehood is really good, um, because you know there's there's an inherent connection between land and personhood within popular understandings of indigenous people. So it's, it's already there and present. And so having uh, that framework that already exists, even if it is very historicized, particularly in Canada, right? That's the big issue with Aboriginal rights. So um, those are things that just don't register within uh, religious freedom discourse in, the United, in Canada or the United States. And uh, that's something that needs to change. In the comparison between reconciliation and coexistence, Peoplehood is the more efficient resolution for integrating Indigenous religious protections into the Canadian legal system. We will demonstrate this by analyzing the limitations of reconciliation and coexistence to emphasize how the importance of collectiveness, which is the embedding notion of peoplehood. How can the protection of religious freedom be extended? When presented with the notion of peoplehood, it seems that this is more suitable and efficient within the law. In the famous Supreme Court of Canada case, Tanaha Nation versus British Columbia, we are challenged with yet another case regarding religious freedoms infringed upon by the state. In this case, a master development agreement for a ski resort by the developer of Glacier Resorts was signed by the minister. The resort was to be built in Katmuk, which the Tanaha Nation believes is sacred land that houses the grizzly bear spirit. Permanent human occupation of the sacred land would drive the grizzly bear spirit away, which in return, profoundly harms their religious manifestation, identity, and culture. This led them to seek judicial review of the contract as they argued that the minister failed to comply with his duty to consult under section 35 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And by approving the developments, the state is interfering with their fundamental freedom of conscience and religion under section 2A. 
The court found that the government upheld their duty to consult since the Tunaha Nation were involved in all procedural elements and negotiations leading up to the approval of the contract. The court reminds them that the duty to consult does not guarantee that the negotiations will be in their favor, but rather its purpose is to involve them in all communication. In regard to Section 2A, the court found that there was no infringement to their freedom of religion. Shrubsville notes that the court is indeed deciding on what is important within religious freedom in Canada. The court has said we don't want to be anthropologists or theologians or anything like that, but the fact is, as soon as you start judging the significance of an infringement on a community, when you're infringing upon their religious traditions, uh, religious practices or beliefs, whatever it might be, you are making a judgment as to the uh, importance of that particular thing that is being infringed. And so, you know, the courts can try all they want and pretend that they're not engaging in, these, in this sort of analysis, but they are saying, this is what's important in your religion and this is what's not. And that's what's going to need to change. They stated that freedom of religion should not extend to protect anything beyond the right to believe and to manifest that belief. So protecting the object of a belief or the spiritual focal point of worship, in this case, the grizzly bear spirit, was beyond the scope of Section 2A. In light of this judgment, we would like to analyze and critique reconciliation and coexistence as resolutions to this problem. I'm going to be focusing on reconciliation and its issues within the Canadian framework. Starting off, I'd like to mention that Wayne Worry touches on issues such as truth-telling, reconciliation, restoring, history, and commemoration that involve making choices about how we, as Canadians, will come to terms with and remember a problematic past in relation to the future. In Canada, reconciliation has been legalistic. Primarily concerned with reconciling Aboriginal and Crown land title, recognizing Aboriginal rights under Section 35, which we discuss in the Tunaha Nation case, and paying financial compensation to individual residential school students to resolve their abuse claims. The issue with reconciliation, especially in terms of the TRC, is its one-sided tendencies to resolve issues with apologies and efforts to move forward. However, Nicholas Shrubsall, who had pleasantly agreed to speak with us, suggests conciliation as a way to move forward. This idea has to deal with imagining history that never existed and is a first step to a larger process that he suggests requires relationships with the earth. In saying this, it's valuable and carries wisdom in recognizing water, earth, and animals in a legal order not subservient to humans. We tend to forget about these Indigenous traditions that the Canadian government tried to strip away in their effort to assimilate Indigenous children, and in doing so, taking away these very ideas that are important to their identity. This idea of conciliation is interesting because it suggests that we get back to a 16th, 17th century relationship where there is almost respect towards these traditions and a real importance in learning not only what they are for means of survival, but what they mean for us as humans and to our collective relationship to the earth. But when dealing with reconciliation, Shrubsville prefers that if we're going to coexist and be in a contemporary state, Acknowledging each other's presence is an important step forward. We also have to consider what the Canadian legal system does or how it might help this process of reconciliation. In reality, reconciliation requires elements that are a complete overhaul of Canada's legal system. In fact, Mayan American legal theorist 
Sandy Grande cautions against taking this approach because it's quite assimilationist in that it subsumes indigenous theory and pedagogy into Western theoretical frameworks. This is what we're trying to get at in including the Tunaha case within our discussion. We do want to see the extension for the protection of religious manifestation and the object of belief, but is taking these traditions and placing them within the law under the protection of religion really going to force us to understand why these protections are important? It would just be adding and including more pieces of Indigenous traditions and almost stripping these away from these communities and placing them under Canadian identity, rather than acknowledging that indeed these are very important to the Indigenous communities and then attempting to reconcile with them, we need to take an approach that is more understanding and a relational approach rather than a majority-minority one. So, given this reality, and in light of the TRC's five-year mandate, it is both timely and necessary to rethink what reconciliation looks like. When the goal of reconciliation is delinked from Indigenous self-determination, states are not held accountable for past wrongs or for transforming intergroup relations, and this is why I quite like the idea of restorative justice. It's not about hugging and making up, Rather, it strives to create conditions of social relationships in which all parties might achieve meaningful, just, and peaceful coexistence. What Sumaya is going to talk about is what we see in reconciliation and coexistence is this idea of community, and I don't want to say merging ideals together, but it's ignoring the past and how the state does view certain traditions differently in that. Webster Dictionary defines reconcile in two ways. To restore to friendship or harmony, or the cause to submit to or accept something unpleasant. Many Indigenous peoples say the latter definition most accurately describes current reconciliation efforts. The issue in submitting to or accepting something unpleasant is it aids in the reconciliation process, but in most cases accepting something unpleasant is recent attempts made by the state to acknowledge its abuses in residential schools. However, it does not acknowledge the long span of history and relationships that we carry with Indigenous peoples. I want to pass it over to Samaya because we see that we've been in a state of coexistence for quite some time, and this is why we need to reflect upon why the things we've been doing haven't been working, and why peoplehood might be a better option for focusing on how to define new relationships moving forward instead of being stuck in the past and apologizing for past wrongs. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines coexistence as the following, to exist together or at the same time. Coexistence is inevitable since neither settler nor Indigenous peoples are going anywhere. As Sharpsell reminded us, Indigenous people are here to stay despite Canada's best effort to destroy them over a century. They've been thriving and revitalizing over the past 70 years and never went away. It is true that Indigenous peoples have never gone away and always existed in Canada, but they have been silenced for far too long. Based on its common definition, Canada does adhere to coexistence, but what is the point if one's existence is being silenced, ignored, and marginalized? The issue is we tend to ig ignore the fact that Indigenous rights have always been included in the discourse, but never included in law. Indigenous peoples in Canada who once held the responsibility for the entire territory of this nation are now only legally entitled to less than 3% of it. The legal system does not work hard enough to include Indigenous rights. It has normalized a colonial settlers' legally constructed communities and institutions that were implemented upon people who live in the common space. In the midst of this process, 
indigenous peoples were racialized and rendered invisible, powerless, and silenced. Denise Nadeau, an indigenous scholar, offered her own perspective on coexistence as she said, I believe in the possibility of a non-indigenous people partnering with indigenous nations over shared land. The original treaties and the two row wampum belts were and are about sovereign nations respectfully engaging with each other without interference. They are more about coexistence than about reconciliation. But coexistence is much better in theory than it is in practice. And you can see that once you consider all terms under which coexistence in Canada, especially given our historic injustices such as residential schools. In fact, land grabbing, the use of alcohol in business transactions, starvation and reserve creation, stopping indigenous spiritual practices and imposing Christianity on a peoples with their own belief system all occurred under coexistence. I mentioned these events to emphasize that the historicism of settler indigenous relations is difficult to forget within this 21st century context. To consider coexistence, we would have to erase past events and ignore them. Coexistence is not a solution. Rather, it is an existing component of Canadian society. To efficiently improve the coexistence and overall relationship between Indigenous peoples and settlers, we offer the concept of peoplehood as a solution since it would better secure and protect Indigenous religious freedoms. The legal order in Canada is not really capable of engaging with the cultural perspective mm. of the land or animals, uh, water as living uh, entities. You know, our law is very anthropocentric. It's very human-based. So, you know, animals, land, water, whenever they're mentioned, get mentioned very, very much in relation to human beings. That's the sort of, uh, that suggests that, you know, human beings are the pinnacle of creation and everything else is subservient to them. And so this this I this is part of that rec that sort of reflection part that recognizes that part of the cultural legacy of Europe Europeans and Euro Canadians is this sort of very human focused um, perspective of of law and and how our world our, our cosmos right cosmology how our world is ordered. In light of what Shrubsol has said about the anthropocentric nature of the Canadian legal system and their lack of understanding for Indigenous cultural ties to land, water, earth, and air, utilizing peoplehood as a framework for protecting those beliefs is quite useful in our eyes. Because it is parallel to the workings of the Canadian judicial system, we can use peoplehood to play with the cultural legacy of European workings, which are human-centered. Webster Dictionary defines peoplehood as the awareness of the underlying unity that makes the individual part of a people. By implementing the idea of peoplehood, this will hold religious traditions to a higher standard and consider them vital to Indigenous livelihoods and their protections within the settler courtrooms. If one thinks of peoplehood as the interlocking features of language, homeland, ceremonial cycles, and sacred living histories, a disruption to any one of these practices threatens all aspects of everyday life. Therefore, considering the Tunaha case to the framework of peoplehood, it would have been clearly understood that developments in Katmuk would drive away the grizzly bear spirit, one which is detrimental to the collective relationship with the earth. What is at stake otherwise is a loss of identity geographically and temporally as an element of the Tanaha community is erased. Sumida Human details that the interlocking elements of peoplehood are what makes indigenous communities who they are and why they are in this place and time. 
Right to a people's collective self-determination together with the collective pursuit of economic, social, and cultural development, is this a necessary tool that would bring about human rights, which could be enjoyed by all people as individuals within those peoples? Religion is absorbed into culture, but ultimately folded into the larger bundle of collective rights associated with recognition of the indigenous groups as peoples. Thus, religion as peoplehood. I mean, there's a reason Tanaka Nation is the, the only one before the Supreme Court uh, in the modern constitutional era, mm. uh, because Section 35 has been a more, you know, a more fruitful avenue. It hasn't been overly fruitful, but it's been a, there's been more security through Section 35. So I think McNally has some, uh, some good insights on the sort of construction of religion as peoplehood as a, as a pathway forward. Making claims to religion as peoplehood and the Register of Indigenous Rights and International Law may offer the best way forward in bringing existing domestic law and including religious freedom law up to higher standards. Peoplehood as probably one of the most important ways to um, secure the protection of indigenous religions. Um, and by peoplehood, this collective right to, mm. to be a people and recognizing that the denial of one's religion is not simply this manifest, you know, the sort of um, choice that one makes. Because if we reduce religion to belief or even object to belief, we're still focusing on belief as a central concept within religious freedom. We, we're, we're sort of allowing the sort of Protestant understanding, Protestant Christian understanding of, of religion to continue to uh, shape religious mm. freedom discourse peoplehood as a concept and it's one that's emphasized in the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It is one that exists within the collective rights in the U.S., within the collective rights of uh, tribal, of both treaties, which obviously uh, Canada has as well, and tribal governance uh, laws, essentially uh, federal Indian laws, which also recognizes the collective right to peoplehood of uh, Native Americans in the United States. And uh, I mean, Aboriginal rights, the, the constitutional you know, a framework has that, has that element built into it, this idea of collective rights. I, I raise a number of possible issues with that in the book, but generally speaking, I really agree with McNally's analysis that maybe peoplehood is, is a better framework through which to approach protections of indigenous religions. Rather than following the roots of coexistence and reconciliation, which would require a complete overhaul of the Canadian system or an acknowledgement of the exclusionary nature of living together, peoplehood can acknowledge the diversity within Indigenous beliefs that the scope of the legal system is not yet ready to comprehend. Until the Canadian system can be decolonized and extend the protection of religious manifestation to the object of belief of Indigenous traditions, we offer peoplehood as a resolution for mitigating future court cases dealing with these issues. We believe that if this was already implemented, the outcome of the Tanaha Nation's case could have been a positive step moving forward for land to person relationships.